Hey, what's up everybody? This is Ross from Planet X Filmworks channel on YouTube and the Zodiac Files True Crime series. Check it out and shout out to Greg and the Gray Stage channel. Their content is amazing. The Gray Stage by Greg Fernandez Jr. Mind by Soul Productions 2020. United States Army veteran and Minnesota filmmaker David Crowley was accused of murdering his wife and daughter before taking his own life in December of 2014. The Apple Valley Police Department suspects the bodies were inside the Minnesota home for three weeks after they were found by neighbors on January 17, 2015. Within 24 hours of finding the bodies, authorities assumed this was a double murder-suicide, the culprit was deceased, and the public was not in any danger. On the day the bodies were found, authorities did not see a bullet hole in the living room ceiling or a bullet in the living room carpet. These were two of the most important items in this case, as they were tied to David Crowley and his daughter. It was only after investigators were told of their existence that they returned to the crime scene on two separate occasions and retrieved the two spent rounds. What did authorities find in the Crowley house that proved David Crowley murdered his wife and daughter and then killed himself? Without a motive and with the absence of guilt, the case was closed with the status of exceptionally clear. If David is truly guilty of this crime, then authorities should be forced to prove their theory. The gray stage exists solely because of the official conclusion as stated on page 92 of the Apple Valley Police Reports PDF. With the conclusion of the review of digital devices, Detective Brian Bone reported on October 7, 2015, there is no other information available for further investigation. Throughout this investigation, the ABPD has not discovered any information or evidence that shows anybody but David Crowley is the perpetrator of these crimes, including the killing of his wife, child, and himself. This book, The Gray Stage, is a direct response to the allegations against David Crowley. Due to the lack of evidence against David, I felt it necessary to write this book. One of the reasons I decided to write The Gray Stage was to help convince the Apple Valley Police Department to reopen case number 15000303. Either the Apple Valley Police Department should be forced to prove David Crowley guilty or they should admit the case is unsolved. Because the official investigation failed to prove David Crowley guilty, I can only assume he is not. What other conclusion could I possibly reach under the current circumstances? On the early morning of January 17, 2015, Paleo's barking attracted the attention of Colin Brocknell. Colin indicated that he heard and saw the dog inside of the Crowley residence, Officer Becker reported, early this morning, and thought it unusual since he had not seen anyone come and go from the Crowley residence. Mr. Prochnow returned home to discuss the situation with his wife, Judy. Judy asked her husband if there were Christmas presents still on the front door stoop of the Crowley house. The Prochnows first noticed Christmas presents on January 10, 2015. Colin then went back to the Crowley home and saw Christmas presents scattered near the front door. Colin was going to collect the gifts and bring them home, but he decided to stack them up by the front door of the Crowley residence instead. That's when the dog attacked the front window, according to Judy Prochnow. 
Early media reports stated Dan Crowley Jr., David's older brother, dropped off a stack of Christmas presents and several miscellaneous items on December 26 or December 27, 2014. However, the police report clearly states Dan Jr. dropped off the items on December 28. Dan Jr. saw Paleo in the front window but stated he did not knock on the front door and did not look through the front window. Items Dan Crowley left in front of the Crowley home included a $50 invoice for general services rendered by the Laman Abdel Law Firm. The invoice was dated October 31, 2014 and billed David Crowley for services related to negotiations with the Michael Entertainment Group. David Crowley and MEG were going to pitch the Gray State Project as a television series. The $50 invoice was originally mailed to Hothead Productions LLC to David Crowley in Owatonna, Minnesota. Another item discovered on the front stoop was a $14,000 check for David given by his father. The existence of this check was not widely known to the public at first. Early media reports led me to believe David and Kamel were struggling financially. Detective Brian Bone filled out a search warrant application in order to see if there was a financial motive for the crime. Through our investigation, there have been indications that the couple may have had financial troubles. Based on my training and experience, Detective Bone continued, money and debt can be a contributing factor for motive in cases of homicide. Due to the circumstances of the couple's death, I am requesting a search warrant for each of the banks and with AAA credit screening to obtain records of all known accounts to verify the financial state of the couple and to verify their financial state at the time of their death. In reviewing the records from Wells Fargo, Detective Brian Bone later concluded, I found that the Crowleys had money in the bank but were decreasing their savings and checking account balances during the time from July 2014 and January 2015. With a $14,000 check on David's front doorstep and a working deal to make Grace State a television series, it's easy to understand why a financial motive was never found. Had it not been for the Christmas presents near the front door and the barking dog inside the Crowley residence, Colin Procknow might not have discovered the bodies on January 17th. Officer Tara Becker recorded audio statements from both Colin and Judy Procknow. According to one of Officer Becker's supplemental reports, Colin looked through the front window and observed what he thought to be dummies. Colin stated that he now knows that they were the bodies of the deceased, but initially he thought that they were dummies or some type of props that were left in the residence to appear as though they were home when they weren't. Mr. Procknell then returned home to explain what he saw to his wife. Colin saw what he wanted to be mannequins, Judy Procknell told me on March 24, 2017. And the reason he said mannequins is because of the condition the bodies were in. Without heads and things like that, you just don't expect to see headless bodies anyway. Judy also explained to me what she saw when she looked through the front window. I saw David lying on the floor, away from Kamel and Ra and the baby. I thought it was a mannequin at first too, and then I realized it wasn't. I couldn't figure out what was wrong until I noticed that there was a spine with a small piece of skull attached. I looked by the couch, Judy continued, and I saw a big bundle of things. I thought at first it was a big butt, and then I saw a little hand. Then I realized that they were all dead, and it was our neighbors. Judy was certain the three bodies were David, Kamel, and Rania before she contacted authorities. Mrs. Procknell then went home and dialed 911. Police and fire dispatch received her call at 12.56 p.m. 
Ah uh, yes, this is Judy Procknow and I live at 1055 Ramsdale Drive, yes. Judy then told dispatch, I think there's been a murder or a suicide next door. Years later, when I asked Judy why she used the words murder or suicide during that 911 call, the response was not what I expected. I'm not one of you, Judy told me. I'm not suspicious when I, if someone dies, I don't automatically assume they were murdered. Yet Judy specifically mentioned murder or suicide to the dispatch operator. I meant murdered as in Kamel and the baby, Judy clarified. It just jumped in my head because they were all dead. That was the only way I could think of that they would be dead, is that he murdered them and then committed suicide because there was a gun next to him. It just looks like there's a pile of bodies, Judy explained to the dispatcher, and one like the head is eaten. Oh no, the dispatcher responded. I suppose by the dog, Judy continued, and I just, my husband thought they were dummies, but they, the hands look real, and they would have been there since before Christmas. Welcome to the Gray Stage Podcast, episode number two, Finding the Bodies. I'm Greg Fernandez Jr. Today we are joined by Dan Hennen, Sophia, Stephanie, and our good friend Anne. Today's topic will cover what we just read, Finding the Bodies, from my book, The Gray Stage, by Greg Fernandez Jr. You can download that right now if you go to thegraystage.wordpress.com. You can download it for free. Don't forget to join the group, the Justice for David Crowley and Family Facebook group, if you haven't already, a group that Dan Hannon started, and we're almost at 3,000 members. That's awesome. So thank you all for listening. Thank you all for everything that you do. God bless you all. Let's get to the show. Can I ask everybody, who else goes over and rearranges their neighbor's doorsteps? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah. I don't either. I mean... Especially with all the packages that go missing, you're likely to, mm-hmm. somebody would think you're trying to steal the packages off your porch if they were over there messing with them. Yeah, I live in an apartment complex and the people right across from us were on vacation for two weeks during Christmas and one of their Hello Fresh boxes was out there. I didn't touch it because, you know, I, I let the manager know about it the apartment complex but I didn't touch it because you just don't know you don't know what could be in it you don't know mm-hmm. yeah. you don't know anything at that point and you know I just didn't want to get blamed for anything that <laughs> happened so I I think the apartment complex sent them an email but that was about it and it stayed there they were very lucky that it stayed there Alan Procknell sees them scattered stacks them up do they look like they've been there for three weeks They had been there for a few days, especially because one of them looked rather damp. The one that was wrapped, that looked pretty damp. The paper looked warped. So to me, it looked like a few days, but three weeks, no. I mean, they're not noticed until January 10th. I don't see that paper bag not being just completely saturated if they were there for that long. Yeah, I'm surprised that the paper bag stayed on that doorstep. If it had been windy and knocked those packages everywhere, I I could see that taking it down the block if it wasn't, if something wasn't weighted on top of it. I was going to say that walkway wasn't plowed or shoveled. 
there was snow accumulated on that. So it must have taken some effort to get from the the driveway, which was plowed, to the front door, and then to make the effort to rearrange all the packages. If they really thought, hey, why are these packages sitting here? I haven't seen my neighbors. Why wouldn't you just call the police and do a safety check? Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, so Dan Jr. dropped these gifts off on December 28th. You only have one person, really, who sees them January 10th. I don't think any of the other neighbors mentioned seeing any gifts aside from that day. And then, of course, you have the $14,000 check, too. Which now, I find it would, is odd because Dan Crowley Sr. wasn't calling to say, hey, how come you haven't cashed this? There's no mention of any emails or text messages you know, from Dan Sr. I think that out of everything, that would have been a, a major key to reach out and ask about. I think that check being there is what really made me go, Wait, what? Because, you know, if it's just like little presents that don't really have much value, yeah, if I was going to leave presents, I probably would. But not a check that big. A check that Mm -hmm. big, I would never leave on anybody's doorstep. I don't care how rich you are, you're not going to leave that much money on a doorstep and not at least contact the person or knock on the door or something, like either when you're doing it or shortly after you've left them there to make sure that, you know, they got that check. Here's what I would say about the, the check, because this, this has come up over the last five years. Well, the concept is, is this. The size of the check is huge, and, and some say it's, it's you know, really large. Some say it's not, and we found out that it's the tax amount that's, uh, I think, the maximum you can give someone on a tax year for tax reasons to consider it as a gift. And so if Dan Crowley Sr. did this for each one of his uh, you know, three children, it would make sense. Now, I also think that he gave that paper bag uh, and along with some gifts because he's 45 minutes away, Dan Jr. probably offered to say, I'll drop the gifts off at David's house on the way through to my house, which is where he was living on the way to St. Paul at the time. And so that part makes sense, which we have to assume that if Dan Jr. dropped the gifts off, uh, is more than likely 100% true, Dan Sr. wouldn't have known that he wouldn't have stopped over, opened the door, dropped, you know, given a hand-to-hand to David. We hear a lot of, you know, why would the check be left there? Number one, Dan Jr. didn't know a $14,000 check was in that bag more than likely, and Dan, he was probably mortified when he found out later that Dan Jr. just dropped everything off on the steps and left. So I don't believe it was intended on that it was left out like that. Now, the other thing is what I have brought up myself uh, right after we found out this information. I would be cognizant of the fact if I gave someone a $14,000 check to check with that person to see, uh, assuming they would have cashed it right away, that's the intent, that's the purpose of the whole thing, and after a week went by and it still hadn't cleared, um, you don't have to wait till the bank statement to come. You can certainly log on and see that it still hadn't been cashed. And so three weeks later, raises my eyebrows that he didn't check. Now, what Sophia said, you know, we don't see text evidence or phone calls that Dan 
senior was calling David to say, hey, what's that check? How come we didn't cash it? It's still you know, sitting out there outstanding as if it hadn't been cashed. But I don't think Dan, the dad, knew that it was sitting on the front stoop for three weeks. Even if it wasn't sitting on the, you know, maybe it was only sitting there for a week, I still think that he took all that, all that stuff from Christmas when he left the residence from celebrating Christmas and you know, maybe he hung on to it for a couple of weeks and then dropped it off on January 10th or so. As far as that's the first evidence that we see of any of the neighbors uh, physically seeing gifts on the step. But I do believe that Dan Jr. had all this stuff in his possession the whole time. The, the gifts, the honest-to-goodness gifts from the family, some of the gifts from mm -hmm. himself, and a package from his father that was just in a paper bag that I believe was stapled shut. So I don't think Dan Jr. knew the contents of what was in the bag. Um, if he did, he probably would have signed over that check for himself, I guess. <laughs> but I don't yeah. want to assume anything. <laughs> but third, the last thing on that, too, is if Dan Sr. was in on this, uh, in on this scheme, uh, it certainly makes him look good, like a caring father, you know, giving cash to his son. Well, we know they were on bad terms and they weren't speaking, and David wasn't telling him the truth of what was really going on in his life. Um, if Dan Sr. was in on it, that's a great alibi here, a big, big sizable check there, knowing that the recipient would never cash it. It's only going to make him look good when the investigators get there. So that was also tossed about as an option that he left it on purpose, that amount, that huge amount, um, you know, as a, as a you know, gift at Christmas time as a, as a loving dad and a you know, doting father to his, his son and wife and granddaughter. Um, that could also be the case because that's what alerted me when I saw the amount and the size of that check. I thought that's very convenient because who's going to blame or even want to point a finger at Dan Sr. by being such a nice, caring, doting dad. But if he did that on purpose, knowing that it would never be cashed, I'm uh, surprised he didn't write a check for 50000 or 100000 But, you know, it was at 15000 which means he probably did have some logic in there about that tax code. Maybe he had done this in the past. We know that Dan Sr. was on not good terms, and uh, Dan Sr. was caught lying to authorities in the police report with his various phone calls and text messages that were not were not validated or supported by evidence. So who knows? That's some really Anything? good insight. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else on the $14,000 check or the um, all those presents and all that stuff that was found on the front stoop? I have uh, this is Dan. I have one more comment on the on the gifts. The some of the presents, if you did look at those photographs of the contents of the gifts that were Christmas gifts from the brother Dan, uh, there were target and shooting shooting practice and targets, not just of regular you know you know simple bullseye targets, but they were all uh, morbid and zombie type of uh, images and uh, skin falling off and, and skeletonized kind of images. Which, which leads one to, to suspect that this was you know, planned and arranged and he was included in the killing. Was this some type of a, some type of a message sent or a code or you know, something else? But uh, the images and some of those of the hand, of the skin coming off the hand and the skeletonized uh, fingers of these zomb dead zombies um, you know, on the shooting targets were very strange. And those were the gifts from Anne Crowley Jr., the, the brother updated, who dropped them off. And who was more likely, in, you know, connected with this case in some way, shape, or form, either directly or indirectly, was connected. Did he buy those on purpose in the target practice? Uh, very, very strange. Remember, he had been 
not on good talking terms since August of that that year with his own brother, and whatever was said by Dan Jr. resulted in David uh, ultimately crying, and and Kamel had to console him after whatever happened. So we know whatever it was was pretty serious, and it caused the irreparable, irreparable, uh, you know, connection there with that that they, they stopped talking altogether. It broke, it damaged that relationship so bad. But who knows? But then to go out and get a nice target shooting gifts and be nice to drop off the gifts there, uh, you know, who knows? It's very, very strange. And then to go back earlier to the dates, we know we got the dates wrong, but just to clarify, it, was, it wasn't Dan Jr. who got the dates wrong. Um, he, he said to police that it was the December 28th that he dropped them off. The Star Tribune article uh, that was quoted by another friend, Mason Hendricks, said that he thought that the brother, Dan, dropped him off either the 26th or the 27th. He, he couldn't remember. And so he may have gotten the dates wrong, or it may have been what Dan told him. But we don't have evidence that Dan Jr. Uh, told Mason that it was the 26th or the 27th. So we don't, we don't know that Dan got it wrong. He certainly may have, but uh, we know the Star Tribune just quoted what Mason said, and he said 26 or 27, and that was coming right from Mason Hendricks. Okay. Uh, so we really don't That's know. Great. It may have been on purpose once again, all to serve as a distraction, being you know, the first two dates were wrong, and then we finally get the 28th, and now we find out four years, five years later that the 28th word likely wasn't true either. All three of those dates could have been set as a, as a trap, as bait, to get us focusing on what date they were dropped off, when in all reality, all three dates were wrong. Yeah, because they have a habit of giving us wrong information. Correct. And that, I think it's just a game to them. That that was done on purpose. That could have been a, a misinformation. The difference between, for the newer listeners out there, the, the difference between misinformation and disinformation is really one word. It's the word intent. Misinformation mm -hmm. is you honestly didn't know, you just got the dates wrong. It sounds like that's what Mason Hendricks happened here was misinformation. But we know that Dan Crowley potentially lied to police when he did tell them it was the 28th. Uh, if those gifts weren't laying there that entire time, then that's a lie. And then all three dates would then potentially become disinformation, meaning it was done on purpose to sidetrack, to mislead, to deceive. And so that's that's more than likely, I think, what we're dealing with here, but we don't have anything to support that. The only two questions I would have on that $14,000 check was, like you were saying, is this something that David's dad does for him every year? The other thing I would like to know is what date that check was dated. What date was that check signed on? And the other, the right. other thing with, with the 14000 just to jump in here, is, uh, that, that's something that Dan Jr. or even Allison, the sister, could have come forward with either on our page or left a message or a note to say, look, Dad's been doing this for all three of us kids for five years, you know, something to expect. Or, heck no, we've never heard about it. Why the heck was he giving it to David, not us? You know, We could have given something like that. We could have been um, you know, provided something like that. Um, but then keep in mind, if they did willingly provide some kind of information like that, it would have probably been uh, doubted or scrutinized um, anyway. So I think that's more of a, it's a horse apiece there. But the, but the 14,000, very interested. It does seem to lend credence to the fact that the family was having trouble financially, which they also thought that David and Camilla were having 
financial. They were fighting off some debt. They weren't able to pay bills. And here you see this big check that kind of, well, two young investigators, homicide detectives like this, they probably thought, wow, they were having a hard time. So maybe he did snap. You know, not, not soon enough he didn't open that mail soon enough to get this check. It may have changed his decision to, to, from killing his whole family. So I think it also helped to cement the fact that they were having financial problems, which to me is sketchy. The, the whole check is, is sketchy because it's, it only favors one side of the narrative. Dan Crowley looks better for sending it. David Crowley looks worse for, for uh, potentially, allegedly needing it. When, in fact, if it was just a gift and no one needed it, Dan Crowley Sr., the father, was known uh, in the Oatana area. Neighbors and, and family and friends did call him a millionaire. Whether that's true or not, he did have money, he did have extra cash, and he was successful. And at the end of the year, if he wanted to get rid of some of his tax uh, debt or tax burden and give gifts to the children to help defray that, um, that would certainly make sense. That does not mean to say that David Crowley needed it because he was constrained financially. And that's what I think the, the young detective thought. They saw the money, they said, well, this guy must be struggling to make ends meet. And sure enough, here's a check from his loving father, you know, trying to help do what he can to you know, make the family succeed. And really, that had nothing to do with anything. It may have been just an annual event that that check came that time of the year. Uh, who knows? That's what drives me crazy about this case is that there's there are assumptions where people are saying, oh, they were struggling. No, they weren't. They had money. Their bills were paid. They weren't in debt. We're paying for a house and stuff like that. But they didn't have negative credit or past due bills and delinquencies on their credit report, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I agree, um, Sophia. I agree because... Even that narrative was pushed all the way up until we received the bank statements that they were in mm-hmm. financial straits, uh, they were struggling financially to try to make ends meet. Once there was bank statements from Wells Fargo and the checking account statements and the credit card statements came through, we all got to see very clearly how frugal this family was, uh, spending very little here and, there and making bill payments on time. Uh, making the mortgage, setting aside a budget to get things done on time. We've seen in some of the notes to make sure things are paid. Um, there was only one instance that I saw over the entire year that they were late on a payment and did get hit with a late charge. And uh, that was it. Uh, so that was not a regular occurrence. They were, not, they were very frugal, prudent people as far as young family, a, a young married couple with a child paying bills that they were not behind. They were not ahead. They were, um, I think they were very good. Uh, they were very prudent. And after looking at that, that really impacted me by looking at those uh, statements. And it reminded me a lot uh, as, a, as a young married person with children, um, the type of bookkeeping and the uh, accounting that, that I myself did. Uh, notes here and there and, and reminders to pay bills and things like that. So um, they were very, I think, honest to goodness uh, doing the right thing, uh, getting having the bills come in and paying the bills, paying their bank statements in full, and living not outside their means at all. They were not living extravagant at all. Didn't they have some real estate company in California that was running a credit check on him and Kamel? Yes. Uh, it was ran two times, I believe, once in October or November, one of those 
month and then again in January. You know, though, if uh, if you spread the story around that they're, you know, broke and having trouble making ends meet and he lost his book deal, he lost his movie deal, he lost his TV deal, decided to walk from, you know, the California deal because it didn't feel right, then it kind of makes sense why he would have killed himself. Mm -hmm. But if you look at all of the credit reports, all, all of the financial information, that's when that whole story falls apart because you realize that nothing in any of their credit reports or, or credit history at all shows that they were struggling at all, anywhere. Hi, this is Sophia from the Gray Stage Podcast. I'd like for all of you to know that the Justice for David Crowley and Family group is located on Facebook. In this group, we highly encourage our members to read all the documents that we have gathered for this case. You can find those documents up in the group files or on Greg Fernandez Jr.'s website titled thegraystagewordpress.com. Together we can work to find justice for David, Kamel, and little Ronnie. Merry Christmas. Are you interested in the paranormal? Murder mysteries. Cryptocurrency and thought-provoking interviews. Then check out Crypt Rick's I've Been Thinking on YouTube or every Monday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Studio A at Revolution Radio. Freedomslips.com Welcome to the Crypt. Then Kamel makes two phone calls the very day that the payment for the house bounced. And basically that was just an uh, automatic uh, withdrawal from David's other account. Um, I'm trying to remember this. Like it was set up already. Mm-hmm. It was a transfer yeah. into one account. Correct. And so she just made two calls, and the second call was the one that transferred the money um, from David's account to that account, uh, their joint that paid for the house. So it was done very quickly and settled. And there was a rumor going around over the summer saying that their house was in foreclosure at the time of their death and they were behind in their bills and struggling and everything, and and that was not the case whatsoever. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it was in the Apple Valley Police Department report. Did they find some, like, silver bars in the basement, too? I remember seeing that. Or gold coins? Yes. Yeah, yeah something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So silver, if they were yeah, yeah. financially, they could have just cashed in 
Right. That's a really good point. They had, a, they had so much in that basement. They had so much stuff in that basement that he could have taken to a number of places and gotten enough money to make a mortgage payment. If he was really honestly struggling for the money, that is. I'd like to, uh, bottom of page uh, five, just just yeah. clarify two what I would call uh, carefully crafted statements by police, um, whether it was intended or not. But you do see that uh, Detective Brian Bone says that through, through our investigation, there have been indications that the couple may have had financial troubles. Key word there is may. I think a statement like that could be written about uh, any family they find uh, in a murder, suicide, or a murder. Uh, it's very open-ended the way he phrased that, that there may have been financial difficulties. That could, be, that, that could be with anybody. And then he goes on to say, based on my training and experience, which is very interesting to say, this is a, it's, it's beefing up his credibility, a statement like that. It says, money and debt can be a contributing factor for motive in cases of a homicide. That statement, I would agree with 100%. That's most of your motives for crimes are that money and debt. He's not saying anything about the Crowleys here. He just says history and training shows that money and debt can be a contributor to homicide. That's a fair statement. Yeah. He goes on to say that due to the circumstances of the couple's death, he's requesting you know, a warrant for the banks uh, to verify the financial state at the time of their death. I think that's fair to say. And he did get it. it get that. He did get the information from Wells Fargo. Then he goes on to say, and this is the last thing, is I found the Crowleys had money in the bank but were decreasing their savings and checking account balances during the time from July to January, uh, 2014 to 2015. That I, I feel is a very interesting word sentence by Detective Bowen. It helps lend credibility to the fact that they were canceling and closing out everything uh, on their way to being despondent and depressed and to, and, to, and to kill the family. You know, it helps push that narrative that they were decreasing their balances. Now, I've seen the bank balances and the credit card statements from every month that Brian Bone is talking about here, and some balances they're higher, some balances the monthly balance is lower. Um, there's no trend there whatsoever. So I find that very odd that he put that in there like that. Uh, making it sound that the trend was going down, that it was getting down to almost zero. It's kind of what, what he's alluding to here, is what he's trying to make the reader think by reading this. So I think he's planting, more seeds are being planted with a statement like that. I found it very normal, I guess you could say, if they were planning on moving from Minnesota to another state, it, to me, almost seemed like they were just going through um, getting everything set and ready to move. Like they went to the, the dentist, which that's something I did before I moved to a different state. That way I had everything up to date and I didn't, you know, in case there was some time between losing one insurance and getting onto another one. But in, in looking at that kind of stuff, in my opinion, I didn't see anything that really said that they were despotent or hurting for money. It all seemed pretty natural with what they were doing. It didn't seem at all like they were 
planning a double murder, suicide, or anything like that. Because why would you care if you go to the dentist or not if in two weeks you're going to be blowing everybody's head off? Yeah. Yeah. He, um, and they had not only were looking, they were actually had a, I believe they had a real estate agent in California that were already looking at homes for them. And so they were, they were planning on moving, um, and they had already decided, you know, which state. It wasn't just simply to move, and, and they had zeroed in on a location in California that they were you know, looking at homes already, narrowing down the criteria search as, as far as what kind of home they would like to live in. So they, uh, they, Detective Bone, I think, was wrong on that information. Um, he could have done further drill-down searches on this to include that uh, they were not having financial problems. In fact, they were looking to, to move because of this contract deal. Um, and the other thing to consider, too, they had their daughter enrolled in a very expensive school. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That is Correct. That was a, yeah, in Minnesota here, that, that type of the Montessori that she was enrolled in was no, no cheap school. That was a higher-end um, learning option uh, for her at that age. And... Um, yeah, you got to go through, and they'll do a credit check and a background, and you got to qualify just to send your child to that school. So, I think I think all this information lends uh, actual evidence that lends credibility to the fact that they were not in financial dire straits. Comel had even went to this at length to say that she was writing a book and let her dietary dietitian license in the state of Minnesota lapse. She let it expire. So that, that also leads to the fact that she's probably looking to get to re-up her license in another state. Then we go to Officer Tara Becker, and um, we get to what Colin actually saw. Colin looked through, through the front window, and he observed what he thought to be dummies. Here's the thing. He thought that they were dummies or some type of props that were left in the residence to appear as though they were home when they weren't. I mean, it's... It's not only weird to just think that these were dummies, but looking at how the bodies were actually laid out, what happened to those bodies and everything, that was made... It was made so that somebody would think that they were home when they weren't? I don't see how the way the bodies were laid out, how anybody could assume that that was purposely done because I don't know anybody in their right mind that would lay dummies out like that. Right. I mean, to, to me, that's a, a great way to get somebody to call the cops and say, hey, look, you better go check that out. I do, I do think that that right there, where he thought they were dummies at first, would be what someone who is not a suspicious person would automatically jump to. Correct. I agree with that. Because if, if you're a suspicious person, your automatic response is, oh, they were murdered or they killed themselves. If you're not a suspicious person, I think this is a perfect guess on to what could possibly be going on in that house if you don't have a suspicious mindset. Yeah, I, I agree, Stephanie. Um, I think this is the this is the telltale sign, I believe, that, that Colin, Colin Brocknell was an unsuspecting or unwitting victim. If he was, if, if Judy was part of this, he was certainly not in the know. 
um, the response and the answers that he gave were, I think, would be consistent with that of a normal person stumbling upon bodies like that. Mannequins, dummies, I think that's what most people would think. Now, right. the part that I agree with on Greg is the, I don't like the fact that he used the phrase, they were made, set up to make it look like someone was home. And I don't know if that's just Colin not, not knowing what he said or if he was in a state of shock when he made that quote. Um, that doesn't make sense. It's not like they were sitting up in chairs with, in fully clothed, <laughs> uh, like some kind of a prank or something, uh, you know, or, or for a movie set or a prop or something. They were lying on the ground with missing limbs. Um, so I don't get that statement as far as made to look as if someone was home. But I do agree with the mannequins and dummies. I think a normal person um, seeing something like that would probably think that's what it was. And so I think that's when Judy, I think, at that point, had to do something to get him back over there because um, I feel she was in the know and they were intended to, to find the bodies. And she said, no, I think you better go back. Um, her response is not a typical response of someone that's consistent with being shocked at what, what they've seen. You know, her 911 call was very suspicious and, and this whole thing. Colin does seem to be an unwitting uh, person here that's not in the know is what it seems like to me. He's not acting. He's he has everything that he does seems to be authentic and organic. His response, his nine one one phone call, um, he's just he's just shocked. Judy's is more of a of a script or bullet points uh, that she's reading off and rattling off to nine one one dispatchers um, and saying, you know, you know, Colin, go back over there, check it out. There's no way they're mannequins. And then the neighbor wants to come over and look inside, and she says, no, no, don't look, you know. It's awful, you know. So she's the one. Judy's the one giving leading questions and planting seeds. Colin, I think, is just answering a, a normal way uh, a grandfather would probably answer being shot like that, not knowing. Um, I think he would think they were mannequins or or dummies. I just don't agree with the that they were made to look like someone was living there. Um, I don't. I don't understand that. I also want to jump in and say, like, if you look in here. Judy tells the neighbor, don't look in the house, it's awful. But she was also one of the people who came to the justice page early on. And initially, people actually were very sympathetic towards her and felt bad at what she saw. And she went into graphic detail early in this case of the condition of the bodies. I mean, it's strange to me. She tells the neighbor not to look, but she's going to go on a public Facebook page and describe graphic details of what she saw that's not consistent. And I remember when she was doing it, it was really quite shocking and disturbing at the time. And that was five years ago today. Yeah. Oh, she's Valentine's still joking day. about it to this day, about the state of the bodies and the tragic deaths of David, Camille, and Ronnie. To this day, she is joking about it. It's, it's incredibly sick. That's just as sick as the friends online putting on public forums all the disgusting comments that they made. Like, if this is your friend and you believe that he committed this crime, why on earth would you be making a sick joke like that? Or not, not just, It's not just one thing that they said. It's at least ten different comments that several of these friends made.
you know, everybody was sympathetic to all of these friends and Judy until the comments, because those comments are what say, oh, you don't need our sympathy. You're talking about the dog barking at the window and Jan Jr. Oh, I was going to say, Jan Jr. said the dog attacked the window. There was somebody on the justice page, knickknacks and books. And none of the knickknacks are disturbed. There's still dust sitting on there. The books are straight up and down. How did the dog get to the window? If he was jumping on the shelf, wouldn't the objects on top of it be falling to the floor or something? That's a very... Yeah, that's, that's a very good point, is they should have fallen if he was viciously attacking the window like it was said. Yeah, and those, uh, for the newer listeners, the newer members of the group, the it, it's not a, it was not a sturdy bookcase there in front of that window. It was kind of a wobbly, um, flimsy bookcase there that did have books on it and some knickknacks at the top. Beside those two bookcases, I think there was two, there was a very little space in the middle for a dog to get in to jump up at the window, and there was no space on the left side of the window because that's where the Christmas tree was. The right side of the window had a little space from the bookshelf to the opening of the window that the dog could have jumped up on to do the barking. But we see images from the crime scene showing that that curtain was closed uh, over that section of it. But then later on the same photos that they were taking, that curtain was you know, subsequently wide open. So the curtain was moved, but it does allow us to see where the dog could have potentially jumped up uh, to attack the window. But that, that space was very small to do so. And none of the knickknacks, uh, like the gal said earlier, uh, were disturbed, knocked over. Um, you know, if a dog jumped up there and attacked, uh, those things could have been flying all over, all those little knickknacks. Uh, but they weren't. It was very strange. And Judy said later on another comment before all the FOIA requests came out, she said the dog was up there because that's where the couch was. The sofa was in front of that big picture window. And the dog was jumped up there and attacked the window from the sofa. And uh, she went on pretty heavy on the comment section on the people.com, the People Magazine website when the article came out and when the story broke nationwide. Uh, she spent the best part of that afternoon on the comment section heavily trolling there and telling everyone that the dog jumped up because there was a sofa in front of that picture window. And so when the photos came out not soon after that, soon after that, that showed that no sofa was even close to that front picture window, that's when some of her story started uh, collapsing. She's very obsessed with this case. The amount of time she spends online looking for this case on the different forums, different articles, Reddit, YouTube, everything, and then she goes into the comments sections and stuff like that. It, this is unhealthy. For just somebody who is just a neighbor, it's a, it's a very unhealthy thing. To play devil's advocate, you, you could say fairly that, you know, I myself have a very unhealthy fascination with this case. However, um, as Ann just pointed out, Colin, as Judy told everybody, Colin was having a very serious, um, t uh, a, a very troubling time trying to get over what he saw 
you know, by himself, which, I mean, that's completely understandable. But as Ann was saying, if you know that's going on with your husband, why on earth are you going to sit here five years later and still be the main, or excuse me, one of the main people attacking people for going against the official narrative? The way way that she's gone about this whole thing since day one when the bodies were found is just very, very concerning. When she calls in, and the second thing that she says is, I think there's been a murder or a suicide next door. Mm-hmm. She has to understand why people would start asking questions about her jumping to conclusions so early and it's not just that just like how Dan was saying if you compare the the two 911 calls they're like night and day looking through the same window the exact same window these are two people that have lived together for a very long time looking through the same window one sees dummies, the other sees a murder or a suicide, and describes dog scavenging. It's a big, big difference. It's confusing when you have two people also calling in about the same thing that, again, live in the same house and don't even, they're not even on the same page about who's going to call 911. They both end up doing it. And that gets, Greg, that gets back into the misinformation or disinformation. Uh, was that done on purpose to, you know, all this chaos we had, uh, was that all planted um, to create that, to confuse on purpose? My first request, uh, before I requested the FOIA for the police log, was the audio transcript, the audio of Judy's 911 call. At that point, I didn't know Colin made a call. I didn't know two people made a call. I asked for the audio. I was quickly shut down by saying, we can't send the audio, but we can send you a transcript of what was said. And I said, that sounds good. So that was odd. Is that a common thing that they will not send out the actual uh, 911 phone call in audio format? I think that would be very telling by the inflection of the voice and how it was stated by Judy. Uh, I think that would be very, very telling. With the other case that I received from Apple Valley, we received the audio recordings for that case. I'm not sure if we received the 911 call, but we got the interviews, and that was very enlightening, wasn't it, Greg? Yeah. And I think that in the future, if this case was to be uh, reopened or reinvestigated, the thing we should get is the audio of that 911 call and the interview videos of the interviews police held on, on surveillance, and they were captured on on audio and video, I think, of the interviews, and also the dash cam of Tara Becker's squad car that was positioned at the scene of the house that was uh, aimed, the, the camera was aimed directly at the front door and was left on, I believe, for four straight hours. Um, dash cam video does exist. And that'd be able to get, to pick up the movements and the, and the actions, I guess, of the of the first responders, uh, but this 911 call would be interesting just to hear it in the voice of someone and then be able to give that to 
someone that does language uh, breakdown, if that's someone uh, lying or being authentic or organic or reading from a script or planting seeds, I think that would be good, a good one to get to do a test on the actual audio of that 911 call. That may also be the reason that it's also been um, you know, held back if they don't want that to get out because you can't tell so much from a person's voice on that call might be the first reason that they shut that first thing down right away by saying we're not going to release that. Good point. Now there's two, so we we want both of those calls, right? From Judy yeah. and Colin. And I have requested them. I was just shut down by Did they give any reason or anything or Mm -mm. I mean, is it, no, is it worth... No, I wasn't given a reason. They just... I, mean, I don't see why they... Won't just give a, yeah, they just give... They just hand out the same thing, almost as if, okay, well, if somebody asks for this, just, just send them this. But, I mean, they should at least give us a reason, you know. Maybe we should press them on that a little bit. There should be a reason for that. If um, I had made a very detailed list, and specifically requested like the dash cams and that footage from Tara Becker that from that vehicle and everything was ignored. Every single thing that I asked for was ignored. So, and Dan, I'm happy to give you a copy of that FOIA so that you can see exactly what I had requested. Um, yeah, a screenshot of that or just a one page of that particular request would be good. You can shoot that over on an email or something. Uh, I do think that they're, okay. gonna, they're not going to provide that for sure. But uh, And I had also requested on an official transcript that, that dash cam recording of Officer Tara Becker's car, that squad car that they uh, said in the police report the note was on, uh, the video was on, and the note said it was recording, you know, I think it was memory serves, I think it was four hours um, straight that thing was on. That would have been interesting just to see, uh, not from the Judah Collins perspective, but to see the actions of uh, and how they were going about who was going in, who was going out. It wouldn't have captured anything in the back yard, um, but it would have been just the front kind of of the scene. Yeah. But that, that was rejected as well. I don't see why it would be an issue, though. I mean, it's just... Oh, correct. About the house. Correct. There should be no. That should be the first thing being <laughs> able to receive. And I said in my notes too, if there's a cost, um, you know, for making a DVD or burning a CD um, and something like that, uh, I'll gladly get, reimburse you the costs of what it would take to put the time and effort into transferring that to you know, the four-hour recording. And nope, that was still shut down. So I think by this time, when the FOIA started coming through, I think at this time. Um, one can conclude that the higher up in the Apple Valley Police Department already were given the um, the order to you know start limiting what's coming out in this case, or or one could call it the cover up on the aftermath of all this, because what we got versus what we didn't get was already was already censored right at the beginning, what we were getting and what we were told. Right. And that's, right, uh, it was after that point is when I when I went to the Apple Valley Police Department Facebook page and gave them a one-star review saying <laughs> the detectives handled this case very poorly. And it wasn't done in bad taste. I didn't, I didn't use foul language or go in there yelling and screaming. I just left a note saying that one out of five stars that the uh, that investigators handled this case poorly. 
and it wasn't but a couple of weeks later that it was uh, that comment was removed. And then I asked uh, who removed the comment and why. That's the whole purpose of having ratings and comments, much like Yelp for a, a restaurant review. You want to see the good and the bad. And I had nothing written uh, poorly or in distaste. Uh, it was it was an honest feeling that I have to this day. It's a one star out of five of how the detectives handled that case. And they never got back to me as far as why it was removed, who removed it, and for what reason would they take out a review on their Facebook page. So it, all these things lead back to the suppression of information started at the very, uh, at the very beginning with these, with these folks. And that's not to say they were involved in the murder. That uh, just lends, uh, I would say, so it supports the evidence. It supports the fact that they were somehow covering up in the aftermath of this event. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and uh, wrap it up unless anybody else has anything else on um, the 911 call. I think that's a great place to kind of end it. We'll end it on page 9. I'd like to make a quick comment about the 911 call, and that's if you were looking in your window of your neighbor's house and seeing these horrific scenes, you have no idea what happened or if there's a danger in your neighborhood. Why would you leave your spouse and make two separate 911 calls? If it was me, I wouldn't let go of my spouse. I'd want to keep that person in eyesight and be safe. I just thought that was bizarre. And then they didn't seem to realize the other was calling. Around this time, Colin Procknell called 911, but before he did, Colin went one house east of David's and spoke with Tuppy. Now, Officer Tara Becker reported what happened next. Tuppy stated that the Crowleys were brought to her attention today when her other neighbor, Colin Procknell, came over and asked if she knew where the Crowleys might be. Tuppy stated she thought they had possibly gone to Texas for the holidays and just weren't back yet. So she called David's landline. Is that the landline number? The 0461? I thought it was a cell phone number. have a landline. <laughs> I didn't okay, think well, they had a landline either. Okay. And that's possible that she just got that wrong or that... I thought maybe Mr. Alam. Wasn't he paying for their cell phone lines at one point and then he stopped so they had to get new numbers? I I just kind of thought that was the reason that the call didn't go through. But I I agree. It's odd that it, it's almost like Judy had to race Colin to the phone. And then the 911 operators, the, the way he spoke to Colin, I thought that was really rather odd because wouldn't you be wanting to wait? Wouldn't you be trying to get as much information as you can, you know? Like, he j it's almost like they were like, listen, we, uh, we already talked to your wife, so why are you calling? Like, it's wrong that he was calling, which, I mean, may maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they only want one person to call to report a crime, and that's it. The way they don't have to track down as much. Who knows? If you looked in your neighbor's window and saw this, why are you leaving your husband at all? You don't know if there's somebody still stalking around coming to do the same thing to you next. Like Not in every always. other 911 call I've listened to, it's 
okay, hold on, stay on the line with us, help is on the way, um, not, yeah. okay, yeah. goodbye, get off the phone. I think the only other thing that I want to get everybody's thoughts on are this gun, because if you read the 911 transcript, it's not clear by that if Judy saw, the, saw this gun. Just, I mean, just in this call. If we're just looking at this call here, um, she's saying that Colin saw it. She never really says that she saw it. And that kind of bothered me because um, when I wanted some type of statement in this thing. She's so clear about all of these things. It should be clear whether she saw that gun or whether she didn't. But she's asked, and she says, yes, my husband saw it. She doesn't say, yes, I saw it. Okay, so right before they ask him what his name is, so he says, uh, yeah, 1051, would somebody like to come over and, uh, what is it, do a welfare or well check or something like that? Mm -hmm. And the dispatcher says, okay, you said 1051 for them? And Colin repeats 1051. They, the dispatcher says, okay. And then Colin says, and I looked through the front window, and there's like three dummies on the floor. I don't think there are any bodies, but I don't. But it looks like there's a gun next to one, a handgun. And then they say, okay, and what's your name again? He, he spells his name and they ask for his phone number and they give a cell phone number, a house number, and then the dispatcher says, okay, uh, all right, just one second. And then Colin starts explaining that, you know, they were out of town and they saw presents. And after he gets done saying this, the dispatcher says, okay, did you already call? And uh, Colin says, what? Yeah, we tried calling that cell number and nobody answered. And the dispatcher says, no, I mean, did you already call us? Your wife already called us. Judy just called us. And Judy says, the dispatcher says, okay, you saw the gun on the floor. And Judy says, um, yes, my husband saw it. He's not here right now. He's talking to the other neighbor. We hadn't seen any movement over there and all that. So... Colin saw the gun. She did But didn't. it's not clear. Right. It's not clear if she did. Right. Right? Right. It, if she did, she does not specifically say it anywhere. She does specifically say her husband saw it, but she doesn't specifically say, yes, I saw it too. Which, if she could see in such detail the fingernails, wouldn't you think she would have noticed the gun? Because... The, the, I mean, that's something more recognizable. You could you could recognize a gun better than you can a, a body that's just got like a little bit of a skull and hair stuck to it. It's kind of how you don't call nine one one. They should use that. Yeah, this is the they exact way you don't call us. <laughs> don't do this. Because it's just it's just really bad. I mean, there's nothing here that you just go, oh my, like what what are you talking about? What are you? It's way too much guessing going on.
Okay, I want to thank you all for listening to the Grace Stage podcast number two. I really appreciate all of you. This will be a monthly podcast. We're going to try to put out something new every month. Our goal is to try to reach as many researchers as possible to put the information in this book in the hands of as many people as possible. That is the goal of this podcast. That is the goal of the book that I wrote. Murder at 1051 Ramsdale Drive. What happened to David Crowley, his wife, and his daughter? If this was truly a double murder-suicide, why did investigators fail to prove David Crowley guilty? Where is the evidence David Crowley killed his wife and daughter? Where is the evidence David Crowley killed himself? Within 24 hours of finding the bodies of David Kamel and Rania Crowley, the Apple Valley Police Department were treating the incident as a double murder-suicide. Authorities cannot prove David wrote Allahu Akbar in his wife's blood on the living room wall. Authorities cannot prove David wrote I have loved you all with all of my heart on a laptop in the kitchen. Authorities cannot prove David wrote Open the Rise most recent version Submit to Allah Now on a notepad in his office bedroom. Authorities cannot prove the dog trapped inside the house ate David's right hand, both of Kamel's hands, and their daughter's right arm, since dog feces tests were never done. Authorities did not know about a bullet that rolled out of a living room carpet until they were notified by the cleaning company, two days after the bodies were found. That bullet would later be tied to Rania Crowley. Authorities did not see the bullet hole in the living room ceiling or the bullet in the attic above until they questioned David's friend a month after the bodies were found. Authorities did not find a motive to support their accusations against David Crowley. Authorities did not find David's blood on any of the bullets at the crime scene. Authorities do not know when David Kamel and Rania Crowley died. What we know for sure is that David Crowley has not been proven guilty. A simple truth. It really is this simple. Either you believe David Crowley is innocent or you believe he is guilty. If you believe David Crowley is guilty, you are wrong. If you believe David Crowley is innocent, you are right. It really is that simple. A United States Army veteran is dead. His wife and his five-year-old daughter are dead. A thorough investigation would only conclude with authorities admitting they lacked evidence to support their accusations. If authorities were to admit the case remains unsolved, They would also have to admit that the public may still be in danger. I am not able to solve this case. My interest is in forcing authorities to admit David Crowley is innocent. The reason they refuse to talk about this case is not because they are confident of David's guilt. They lack confidence in their allegations. Their department wishes to move on, but they are only lying to themselves. They must know the simple truth, and they need to publicly admit this. 
Their credibility depends on it now. The unspoken truth is that David is innocent until proven guilty. Why are authorities running from this simple truth? How long do they think they can run for? You cannot run from God. You cannot run from your nightmares. And you cannot run from the facts. Why would anyone want to? What could possibly motivate someone to try? If you cannot prove David Crowley guilty, then he remains innocent. It's as simple as that. So the resistance we face is disgusting. If David was guilty, the evidence would be right in our faces. If David was guilty, resistance to our questions would not exist. If David was guilty, facts would be evident. There are no facts to prove David guilty. There are only facts which prove David innocent. Hence the resistance to getting justice for David Crowley and family. Who cares? Do the people who closed this case and decided to not speak about it ever again really care? Do the friends who accused David Crowley of being guilty days after his body was found really care? Perhaps they only care about spreading the accusations of David's guilt instead of researching the facts of this case. They don't seem to care about the facts which prove David innocent. Truth is a simple thing. Justice does not die. Facts prove David is innocent.